This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Good morning and welcome to episode number 101 of Go To Grandma. I'm your host and Go To Grandma, Kathy Buckworth, and this show is airing on Zoomer Radio Saturday, July 15, 2023. I hope you enjoyed last week's 100th episode, which took a bit of a departure from our regular format to celebrate how far we've come. Today's episode is more about where we are going as we look at the ways in which technology has become such a big part of our lives, and we suspect increasingly so in our grandchildren's lives. Author Katherine Johnson-Martinko isn't the first parent to be concerned about the time she saw kids spending on screens, but she might be one of the only ones to do something about it in her own home. In her new book, Childhood Unplugged, Practical Advice to Get Kids Off Screens and Find Balance, she provides tips you can use right now, no matter the age of your kids or grandkids, to drastically reduce the amount of screen time they have, and it might impact yours as well. My daughter is very conscious of the screen time her kids, my grandkids, have. They have never held a tablet or played a game online, and the three-and-a-half-year-old gets a 20-minute show a day. His two-year-old brother has never watched a show. I see the work that goes into it, and I support her efforts as a grandparent as well. And I loved this book. Then we take a look at another type of technology which is changing the way we interact online. Artificial intelligence and chatbots are becoming more the norm when we look to communicate with companies online. And tech guru Mohit Rajans is back on the show to tell us how we can understand AI and observe it in action, in places you'd not necessarily think to look. Have you been named an executor in someone's will? Have you named someone? Is it an honor or a curse? How hard could it be? Our Take 5 with RBC interview this week is all about busting the myths around being and appointing an executor. I've put away the bubbly from last week and I'm back on coffee this morning to listen and learn from these terrific guests this morning. And I hope you are too. Katherine Johnson-Martinko is up first. Johnson Martinko is a writer with a decade of experience in digital news publishing. She lives in Port Elgin, Ontario with her husband and three young sons. Her first book, Childhood Unplugged, Practical Advice to Get Kids Off Screens and Find Balance, launches on July 15th from New Society Publishers. Good morning, Catherine. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thanks, Kathy. It's great to be here. I thoroughly enjoyed your book, and I'll just preface this by saying that my three grandkids, well, one's only seven weeks old, but the other are two and three and a half, and they have never picked up a smartphone or a tablet in their life. So I really related to this book. Why did you write this book? Well, I have three kids of my own. Um, they range in age from eight to 13. And um, we've always taken a bit of a digital minimalist approach to screens. And I never thought of it as unusual until my kids got older and a lot of parents started approaching me asking for guidance and advice on how to reduce their own kids' uh, screen time. So I sort of realized that this was an area that um, parents were hungry for advice and wanting to know that there is sort of an alternative way of doing things that, that varies from the status quo. Yeah, and you right away in your book get into sort of the reasoning behind wanting to limit that screen time. I'm just going to read a little bit from that. Experience has taught me that when screens are pared down to a minimum and relegated to the role of a helpful tool instead of primary entertainment, then life is able to happen. All the noisy, curious energy of a growing family, a state I call the beautiful chaos, can come bubbling up through the cracks in time that exists between the official things we need to do each day, like work 
and school. With no screens to suppress it, that energy takes the form of adventure and inquiry, of physical presence and play, of deep family connection and bonding. That's pretty strong stuff. I love it. Oh, good. I'm glad. I like to tell people that I'm not anti-technology. I very much, you know, enjoy modern technology. I love my smartphone. I've worked online for many years, and I think that technology has many benefits for us. But it has to be kept in its place and used in appropriate doses. And when it's allowed to take over every aspect of a kid's life in particular, that kid ends up missing out on so many really foundational and formative experiences that I believe are crucial in a well-rounded um, imaginative and playful childhood. So if I'm a parent or grandparent listening to this interview, can you offer me some practical tips for cutting back on kids' screen time? Besides just, I'm going to take that phone away. Can we get a bit beyond that? <laughs> sure. Um, in the book, I do divide it into different age categories. So there's um, babies and toddlers, there's elementary school aged kids, and then there's teenagers. So obviously kids in those different categories are going to need um, different kinds of limits and boundaries placed on their usage. So I do encourage parents to maybe check out the book and see um, how they can tailor things to their, their age group of child. But um, I do encourage with younger kids to just get rid of the devices altogether. I find kids are so inherently curious about the world that you'll find that they they can be distracted quite easily by the natural world, by loose parts to play with. Same with older kids. They are at such a profound stage in their life of expansion and learning and curiosity that, you know, really prioritizing the outdoor play will go a long way and reading books and engaging in crafts and other hobbies and activities. Um, I do encourage creating strict limits for watching. I think that screen time is something that should be restricted to weekends or rainy days. And I'm not a fan of having maximum daily limits. I think that that tends to make kids feel entitled to an amount of screen time every day. And it shouldn't be something that they're necessarily having every day. It can be something that you pull out of your pocket when you really do need a break. Um, and kids will adjust to that. So, uh, it'll become their new norm. Some parents suggest creating a ratio of screen time to outdoor playtime that incentivizes kids to get outside. So you could say... An hour of outdoor playtime equals a half hour of screens or something like that. That's not my preferred method, but it does work for a lot of parents. With older kids, um, you know, teens are starting to ask for smartphones, and a lot of parents feel pressure socially to give it to their kids. Jonathan Haidt, in a recent article for The Atlantic, called on parents to give their kids less powerful phones. You know, there's nothing wrong with starting out with more of like an old-fashioned flip phone or a light phone, which is a really cool gadget that looks like a smartphone but isn't. And that, that way your kids can still communicate with you, get in touch with you, but not necessarily have access to the social media apps that are so addictive. And uh, if your older kid really, really feels like they need to be on social media, maybe just let them access it on a desktop computer since they're still feeling connected, but it's not in their pocket, uh, tempting them every minute of the day. And I guess it really depends on if you've already, if your kids are already into using their phone or their screens a long, you know, time during the day, or if it's just something you're starting with your younger kids, right? There's a difference in how you'd approach that, I assume. Yeah, yeah. If you haven't started yet, I say begin as you mean to go on and delay, delay, delay are definitely very valuable tactics. Um, however, if you're, if you're feeling completely screen-addled and overwhelmed, I also tell parents it's, it's never too late, you know, to start reining it in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can change your mind. You can tell your kids that based on the research that you've done and the latest studies coming out that, you know, the current way that you've been doing things just really isn't working for you and that you need to have, we call it a digital reset in our family. You know, even our kids, sometimes it'll start to feel like we've been giving them too many, you know, movies on weekends or different little treats here and there. And we kind of have to um, step back and reassess and remind them that there are other things that we want them to be spending their time on. um, And that, uh, yeah, it it cannot necessarily revolve around technology. So it's, it's always okay to reset.
Absolutely. I'm reading in your book, children aged 8 to 12 now spend 5.5 hours a day on screens on average, and teens 13 to 18, 8 hours and 39 minutes. That is a huge part of the day. So again, if I'm listening to this as a parent, grandparent, or a caregiver, what would be the most important takeaway that I can have from your book or our conversation? Well, I, I think that it does come down to a basic question of time management. So when you are spending five and a half hours as a preteen or eight hours and 40 minutes a day as a teenager, there's a whole lot of stuff that you're just not spending your time doing. You're not sleeping enough, probably. You're not exercising. You're not having face-to-face conversations with your family and your friends. You may not be, you know, eating well, contributing to work around the house. And I, I just really encourage families to think about diversifying their child's experience of life and really not letting screens get in the way of that. So, you know, we can get hung up thinking about all the the downsides of technology and the harm that it might be causing our children, um, which is increasingly evident. But just think about everything that they stand to gain by getting off of those devices. And, uh, you know, the, the, the beautiful world that awaits for them out there. Absolutely. And it's not just up to us to set a good example. You know, as parents, we need to make sure that we're getting off of our phones and our screens as well. But also, sort of you talk about encouraging relationships with other people in your community who are also trying to decrease their tech, that, that type of screen time in their lives. Yes, I think that's really crucial. And a lot of the experts that I interviewed for my book emphasize that it, it takes a village to get our kids off screens. And that finding like-minded families and educators and programs in your community can really go a long way toward making you feel supported. So I encourage people to, you know, start talking about this issue. I think that you're going to find that a lot of other parents are struggling with this too, but they often feel alone. They often, you know, think that they're the only ones without concern surrounding their teens or their preteens or young child's excessive use of devices. So, you know, you can check out alternative programs too, like forest schools. Um, those are in a lot of communities, and they're really fantastic ways of getting kids out. Um, and definitely encouraging your school, too. Um, there's a chapter in the book on education and pushing back against the excessive use of technology in the classroom and sort of encouraging, starting in your home environment, to encourage kids to spend more time using tangible, hands-on activities to learn and going outside. Absolutely. And actually, my grandson is starting forest school in the fall. How's that? So I certainly know all about that. Yeah. So if we want to get more information, of course, we can pick up the book, Childhood Unplugged, Practical Advice to Get Kids Off Screens and Find Balance. And it's by Catherine uh, Johnson-Martinko. And we can find it anywhere. I'm sure where books are sold. Follow you on social media under Feisty Red Hair. I like that. Yes, that's my Twitter handle and my Instagram handle. You can also find my Substack. I write a Substack newsletter called The Analog Family, and that's at katherinemartingo.substack.com. Perfect. Thank you so much for this, Catherine. Great information. Thank you, Kathy. It's my pleasure. With over 20 years of experience on most major media platforms, Mohit Rajans currently splits his time between speaking on multiple media outlets and consulting with technology and media companies on the bleeding edge of social, digital, and media innovation. You can read more about his perspective on the parenting and media world at dadspotting.com, where he discusses more about the changing digital world we are raising our kids in. Good morning, Mohit. Thanks for coming back on the show. Hello, Kathy. Thanks for having me back. Okay, we've got a big thing to talk about today, and it's chatbots, and it's chat GPT, and we're going to get into all of that. But tell me, first of all, why 2023 is considered the year of artificial intelligence. Well, quite simply, artificial intelligence has become pedestrian. So anyone with a phone and a high-speed internet has the ability now to use the current version of what AI is, A 
AGI, uh, artificial generative intelligence. Now, other than getting into the gobbledygook, let me just quickly simply say this. We have so many functions in our lives on a daily basis where artificial intelligence is already helping the way that we communicate, the way that we work, the way that we're connecting our email to our phone and our phone to our other system and computers. And it's already starting to function. But the reason why 2023 has become so exciting is that there are new programs out that are giving the power of artificial intelligence creation to us the user, the passerby. So whether it's somebody uh, writing a text saying, draw me a picture of a balloon, then you can actually get an, an original image of a balloon made for you rather than you having to figure out how to graphically design it. The same way with something like ChatGPT that you've heard a lot about, rather than asking somebody to create a program that could help you write code, you can just ask this program to write the code for you. And it gets a lot simpler as well. As in, you know, you're hearing about students using it to write essays and people writing cover letters and resumes with it. There's a lot of potential and excitement because of it. Yeah. So we hear AI or artificial intelligence. It seems like a lot, right? Like it's huge. So where can we say here that was AI right there? Where can we observe it in action? So if you consider your connected devices and the way that you're able to look at uh, everything from a smart car to order food online, you know, let's let's take, for example, sometimes when you open up an app to order food, you might get suggestions in your area. That's not all because of the businesses that are actually in your area. It could be because of time of day and sales and what's open. That's all AI working in your favor. You're starting to see a, a massive reduction in the spam that you're getting in your email inboxes. That's because AI is becoming better at filtering out some of those cyber attacks. So that's on the surface level that we're starting to see that increased intelligence means that AI in the way that machines are learning from other data and information is working in your life. The fear about it, though, Kathy, and rightfully so, is that with misuse, it's a little undetectable. So many people are referring to the fact that, yeah, it's great that I can plan a menu and 17 different recipes for the chicken in my fridge through AI, Mm -hmm. but also what happens when I can't tell the difference between somebody who's calling me on the phone that I know and an AI version of their voice. Right. And we talked about actually this on a previous show about grandparent scams and fraud and and how AI is being used to replicate uh, grandchildren's voices. And we have some great information on that. But how are chatbots being used more frequently in the online space? How do I know? How can I sort of suss out if I'm using a chatbot? Not saying it's a bad thing, but just wondering how I could maybe tell. I'll be honest with you, Kathy, it's really difficult now. Mm -hmm. I had a full customer service call with a car repair company, and I knew based on the tone that it wasn't a person that I was speaking with, but the intonation was much closer than I would have ever thought. And with a big company recently, I had a customer service call that was extremely complex based on a business need that I needed resolved. And it was done entirely by a chatbot. What I think I'm getting to is that people will start to identify more and more interactions with frontline customer service through chatbots. You can request currently in the ways that you see it online, you can request to speak to an agent. That's going to take longer because the efficiency of what chatbots are able to accomplish right now is better than ever before. And I have witnessed it firsthand. So that's on the positive side. We see we're making positive steps there. What are some of the potential dangers we should be aware of? Well, there's a few things, actually. For one, you want to make sure that you're conversing with the actual corporation or company or person that you're conversing with. And so from a chatbot perspective, don't engage in conversations with anybody unless you're on an actual company website. 
The second thing is that there's a cultural disconnect still. Some people who might have an accent or might not understand certain terminology. The chatbots are a little bit, a little, let's say, geared towards a much more general audience mm. that it might be used to using a chatbot. Don't forget, for example, uh, Snapchat has a chatbot embedded in it where it helps people find certain things. And, and Google now has Snapchat. Um, snap, or sorry, a chatbot connected to it so that you can do more digging in information. So there is a general amount of uh, knowledge within a certain demographic, but there's also brand new opportunities for chatbots to pop up, like when you're going to have your tire changed or you're trying to return something at a local grocery store. So just consider the fact that you want to go to a corporate site or a company site if you're interacting with any of these chatbots. And then on the other side, like, don't be surprised if you start to interact with them more and more on the voice side as well. And you mentioned before we talked briefly about what chat GPT is, and you mentioned, you know, students writing essays, bad, probably. Writing your own cover letter, good. Finding recipes, how exactly does it work? I'm listening to you and I'm saying, well, I want to try that. Where do I go and how does it work? Okay, so the company is named OpenAI, who have developed the app, ChatGPT. It's something that if you download an Uber app or any sort of app on your phone, you can download ChatGPT. There is a free version. And in that free version, you can't really break it. That's the beauty about this AI stuff right now. You, just the same way you started using Google, you start writing things in that you're interested in, and you just kind of play around until you find something interesting. What you're not going to be able to get is a full-fledged assignment that you can hand in, a you know uh, recipes that are proprietary, uh, things that you can just hand in as your own and ownership from an ownership perspective. Instead, the way it works is it takes all that data that we've been typing away into the world of the internet for the past 20 years, and really just comes out with the best solution that's required for you at the time. There's no other bigger thing happening there. It's crunching numbers, data, and information at a rapid speed and giving you a result. As somebody who's used it since the beginning in the beta phase, I'll tell you, it's still not perfect. I love it. My, Dorothy Parker is my favorite author and writes poetry. So I actually put, write a Dorothy Parker poem, you know, in a form of Dorothy Parker poem, write me something for someone's birthday. It was amazing. And it came back with a poem for me. So stuff like that is super fun to play around with. Yeah, and I think that what you're alluding to is that there is a playful nature to be able to use it with. And I think that that we have to sort of bring the fear level down a little bit because, again, it's a a tool. You might want to use it, but at the same time, you might get bored of it. This was terrific, Mo. I always appreciate your expertise. And if we want to find more about Mo and what he's talking about, he's not a chatbot. He's real. We can find him at dadspotting.com or thinkstart.ca. And he's all over the place um, on, on media and social media as well. Thank you so much for this, Mo. Always a pleasure, Kathy. Thanks for having me. Elaine Blades is Senior Manager for the Professional Practice Group at RBC Royal Trust. Elaine serves on the board and as Chair of the Education Committee for the Canadian branch of the Society of Trust and Estate Practitioners and is a frequent writer and presenter on estate and trust topics. She is also a new grandmother. Good morning, Elaine. Thanks for being part of our Take 5 with RBC interview series. Through conversations with folks like you, I've come to realize that administering an estate or acting as an attorney for property can be very complex. Why is it so many people think acting as an executor is easy? Well, Kathy, that's a good question. Even if they don't use the term easy, many people do seem to think that these are roles they can take on themselves without the need to seek professional assistance. However, they often underestimate what's involved in administering an estate in terms of the time and complexity 
and they aren't aware of the potential for conflict with beneficiaries and the personal liability they may assume should they make a mistake that ends up harming the estate. So simply stated, um, first-time executors are often quite naive. When you ask a room full of people, and I often do this when I'm um, presenting to clients, to raise their hand if they've acted as executor and to keep their hand in the air if they do it again, pretty much every raised hand will come down fast. It's only once you've engaged in the administration of an estate that you truly understand what's involved. And we often hear that being an executor is an honor. Isn't that true? Well, it can indeed be considered an honor that the testator, that's the person making the will, they thought highly enough of you and trusted you enough to appoint you to what is a very important role. But it's it's an honor that comes with significant obligations. Executor has a duty to administer the estate in accordance with the terms of the will, or sometimes when there isn't a will, governing legislation in accordance with all tax and legal requirements in the best interests of the beneficiaries, and the administration must be completed in a timely manner. Even a relatively simple estate, so I'm talking about an estate, there's no ongoing trust, no complex assets or foreign connections, it will generally take at least two years to complete and often significantly longer. During that time, there are a myriad of tasks to complete, ranging from administrative chores, such as cancelling credit cards, redirecting mail, collecting death benefits, etc., to things I'd describe as more complex, like reading and understanding the will, valuing property for income tax and probate fee purposes, selling estate assets in the most appropriate manner, and preparing and filing tax returns for the deceased and the estate. Accounting to beneficiaries is a core duty of an executor. This means the executor must keep meticulous account of every transaction related to the estate. So that's every bill they pay, every penny of income received, and they should be prepared to present these accounts to the beneficiaries and potentially to the court. So folks should be aware that although you may not be obliged to accept the role of executor in the first place, once you do, once you get in there, it can be very difficult to get out. And I remember hearing of a study that found that the majority of people in the role of executor had no idea what their first task should be. Can you tell us where an executor needs to begin? Well, it will depend a bit on the situation, but initial duties include making funeral arrangements, locating the will, and identifying and securing all of the estate assets. If an executor is listening and agrees the role is not easy and would like some help, what advice would you give them? Well, first, they should know that not only are they allowed to get help, depending on the circumstances, they may be expected to seek assistance. Estate lawyers and accountants are key sources of help. Trust companies, such as RBC Royal Trust, are another source of assistance. Trust companies are what we refer to as professional executors, and they can provide assistance to individuals who were named to the role. I found that many people are unaware that this agent for executor service exists. Depending on the trust company, the executor may have the option of retaining the trust company to assist them with all of their duties or just some aspects of the administration where they feel they could use help. It's important to note that while the executor can delegate what we refer to as administrative matters, all matters requiring 
an element of discretion must still be made by the executor. In other words, the executor will still be involved with important matters. This should provide comfort to the executor, who was, of course, appointed to this position of trust. And lastly, there are some do-it-yourself tools out there that can help. And I know of one specifically that RBC offers that's free. It's called RT. A-R-T-I-E. It's a self-service tool that educates an executor on all of the tasks that they may need to complete as part of their role, and it also gives them functionality to actually complete the task. RT can calculate the complexity of the estate you are settling, allowing you to see how challenging your role may be. In addition, you can access a dynamic executor checklist that pre-populates estate information in letters like bank inquiries or cancelling a driver's license, along with other forms and checklists to help keep the executor on track. Lots to keep track of. Thank you so much for this, Elaine. And if people want more information, of course, they can go to rbc.com slash royal trust. Progress is impossible without change, and those who cannot change their minds cannot change anything. George Bernard Shaw. The world has changed so much since our grandparents were young and so much again since we were kids. What's the world going to be like when our grandkids are older? I hope today's discussions were helpful in trying to navigate our way with them. Thanks to Catherine and Mohit for their insights. Next week on GoToGrandma, I talk to a grandparenting pro. D.D. Moore founded More Than Grant as a way to share inspiration and resources for grandparents who understand the importance of their new role and want to invest in strengthening family bonds. She's going to tell us about her guide to modern grandparenting and how it's different from 30 years ago. Then we go out to get some art in our lives as Herman Lowe from the Art Gallery of Ontario tells us not only what's new at the AGO, but why it's a great place to take our grandkids, plus some special programming just for kids. A perfect way to spend a too hot summer day and to inspire our young Leonardos and Fridas. Our Take 5 with RBC interview looks at the RBC Community Gallery. Thanks for dropping in with us today. If you're listening in on the podcast, please subscribe and leave a rating if you have a minute. If you're joining us on Saturday morning at 7.30 a.m. on Zoomer, I hope you come back next week. I'm Kathy Buckworth, your go-to grandma. Enjoy your grand journey. Share your thoughts on this show with us. You can find Kathy on Instagram at Kathy Buckworth or email her kathy at kathybuckworth.com. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.